Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, an event where the public could chat with police officers and ask questions was canceled due to threats of picketing and protesting. According to a report from the Samara Center for Democracy, the appetite for anti-elite populism is actually in the decline here in Canada, and auto insurance rates continue to rise in Hamilton. Why? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that's going on down on, on James Street, and this is uh, well, it's, it's happening all over town. Uh, some time ago, the police uh, Hamilton Police Services developed a program called Coffee with a Cop, which essentially means uh, a, a police officer would sit down and you know they'd be basically open to the public. You know, they have questions, you want to talk about things with a police officer, just have a one-on-one, very informal, and uh, they've done a few of them already. Uh, the next one was scheduled to be at the Mulberry Coffee House on James Street, and uh, the Mulberry has now canceled this with a posting they put up the other day. Uh, they say uh, Mulberry wants to continue to be a safe place, the post states. We know that this takes work, and we are still learning. Thank you for calling us and holding us accountable for our clientele. Uh, they say that uh, there are some concerns about some of the clients, I suppose, that uh, they feel uncomfortable in the presence of a police officer. Uh, which I find rather odd, frankly. Serve and protect, what part of that don't they understand? I want to bring uh, Glenn DeCaro into the conversation. Glenn, of course, is the former chief of police here at Hamilton Police Services, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly. Glenn, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. How are you? It's, I'm great. It's been a while since you've been on the program, uh, but I can still remember some of the initial conversations I had when, when you came over to the, to the city here and, and took over. And, and one of your priorities at that time, Glenn, was always to develop a relationship between police and community uh, and how important that is. That, that's obviously something that uh, has stuck with you all through your years, hasn't it? Well, I think it's an important piece of, of policing, uh, policing with the community, uh, not policing the community. So that partnership is key. And it's about visibility. It's about getting out into the community. It's about... Uh, engaging as uh, the service is doing with these coffee meetings uh, when things are going fine. Uh, uh, Bill, we've talked many times, people don't call the police and, and let them know that everything is going okay. They, they call the police when there's a problem and they need some assistance and they need some support. But the uh, important issue is the service members should be out and they should be visible and they should be engaging the community when nothing's going on in order to build a strong partnership and a relationship of trust. Why is there this, this feeling among some people in the community then? And obviously they've, they've responded to this coffee house. So, uh, they seem to be intimidated by police. Well, everybody comes to the table with a different perspective uh, and different life experiences. And I think uh, Deputy Bergen has captured it appropriately uh, to respect the position of people uh, that come to the table. Uh, however, you know, clearly, uh, look at the history of our community and engaging in dialogue and dialogue by design. Um, you know, the service was uh, was recognized by the CBC in 2016, I think it was February of 2016, as being the second uh, most diverse service in the country. And, uh, Bill, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens through discussion and discourse. It happens by having input of the community and the same input that the service is trying to do now in, in building relationships. Uh, people come to the table with their perspectives, and that enables the service to change and to grow and to enhance its service to all of our diverse communities. 
But with that in mind, uh, even as you were walking the beat way back in the early days of your career, uh, is, is, is there an intimidation factor? Or do people tend to shy away from police officers? I don't know. Is it the uniform? I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure where they're going here. Well, it's the uniform. It's, it's the fact that uh, we are a rules-based society. And when rules are enforced, uh, people sometimes, they don't like it. And somebody has to do that enforcement. It, it's how we live every single day. Um, you know, just recently, about two weeks ago, um, I was down to City Hall with the Rwandan community, about uh, 200, 300 people from the community who have lived through and experienced the Rwandan Tutsi genocide. And it was the 25th uh, commemoration. Uh, Chief Gert was there. And you talk about a community that has reason to distrust the police, the military, uh, it would be the Rwandan community. They were abandoned in their greatest time of need, and yet here they were in Hamilton, proud to be in Hamilton, proud to be sitting at the table with the with the police chief and the service members, and that was about it, repairing that relationship, improving that relationship. And again, this is the same thing that the service members are trying to do in talking to people in the community to get perspective. I can remember, uh, and again, I go back to my days on city council because it was a, a decision made at that time uh, to open uh, community policing centers. And, and I represented Ward 7, which is up on the Central Mountain, of course. And uh, we put one on Concession Street, right by Concession on Upper Wentworth Street. Mm-hmm. And it was a storefront operation. It was staffed by, by volunteers, etc. But the fact that there were officers on the street, and you've done this, you did that as soon as you came in here the, with the downtown uh, contingent that you put on there, the uh, the Yellow Jackets, yeah. uh, and I, that, that now has a negative connotation, but in those days it was, it's a visibility, and just out there walking around talking to people to create that sort of a bond, and, and that continues to this day. And people want that sense of safety, and they want their neighborhood officer. They want to know who the officer is. We encouraged all of our people to get out and meet the community. You know, Bill, uh, uh, a little while ago, a number of years back, um, through staffing and and hours of operation, we had to uh, reduce the hours for the Dundas Community Station. Mm -hmm. And there was a public outcry about the hours and not having that officer there. Uh, so there's that sense of safety, that sense of, of, of pride in your own neighborhood, of having the officer there and available to the community. So I understand both perspectives, but I really have to uh, recognize still the work that the service does in supporting all, all different areas of the community. Look at what the service does with city kids and the police in the park and the touch-a-truck event, again, building relationships you know, the Hamilton Police Service, in giving back to this community, have given back over a million dollars through the their own charity, which is Project Concern. And, Bill, you're well familiar. You've yep. been involved with Project Concern for many, many years. Mm-hmm. So we understand the various perspectives, but look at what the officers are doing in giving back to the community that they serve, and that can only make policing better in Hamilton. I, I, and again, this is the cafe responding, obviously, to consumer and customer complaints, I suppose. But I, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm amazed by some of the comments here. Uh, uh, in the, the issue, the post that they issued here, they said Mulberry Cafe, that of course, has always worked towards creating an inclusive space in which all members of the community are welcome. I guess that means all members except police officers. Well, and you're sitting right across the street from the armories, and uh, our uh, proud men and women of, of the service are, are in that uh, in, are in that place all the time. If people feel that way, Bill, uh, and I, I respect their their position and and what they're saying, but the issue then has to be asked: So, what's the solution, and what are you bringing to the table in an effort to improve it? It's okay to complain about things, 
but what's the solution and how are we going to work together? Because this community is pulled together uh, in so many ways. Uh, you, you know, turn your mind back to the 2001 uh, uh, fire uh, at the Samaj. The community did not divide itself. The community came together, and out of that came the, uh, came the, the mantra of uh, an attack against one is an attack against all. And we have to maintain that commitment to each other. We have to maintain that commitment to improving. Everything's not perfect and we're going to disagree. That's okay. At least we need to be at the table and discussing so that we can get that perspective and we can work on change. But I think, I mean, this program that they've instituted here, this Coffee with a Cop, is a vehicle to do that, isn't it, Glenn? I mean, that gives you that opportunity. If you've got some misgivings or some apprehensions or some concerns about police or policing, sit down and talk about it and and maybe get, you know, some clarity on that. I mean, it's only going to happen with dialogue. Right now, apparently, people have entrenched positions right now and they don't want to even talk about it. Yeah, dialogue by design is always good. It, it can't be about division, Bill. It, it has to be even on different perspectives and things that uh, that people don't agree on. You can only get better if you understand the other perspective, and then you can institute positive change in the organization. You can institute positive change in, in the community. Again, when have we ever been adversely served by sitting down at the table and sharing our thoughts? It always works out to be something more positive, even if you don't agree on specifics. Well, there are a lot of posts about this uh, on social media, uh, some for, some against uh, what uh, the cafe has decided to do here. Uh, one uh, from uh, an individual that, uh, named Sarah O'Sullivan says that uh, it's not the individual police officers that are a problem, it's the system they represent. Now that, to me, screams out for dialogue. I mean, what do you mean the system that it presents? What, what, what's she asking for, a lawless society? Is that, I, I don't, that seems to be all the, the alternative. And if it is uh, if it is about getting people together and 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 having the discussion, again, Bill, uh, you know what the the issues that we disagree on, the people who disagree that they they shouldn't be sitting down with officers because of the system that they represent. What is your recommendation for change? What is the way forward? How can we improve? And if you're not willing to share that, uh, you know, people can complain, but you have to have a solution. And how do we how do we work together to do that? You can't uh, really fault the officers that are out there doing the best that they can. Everybody comes to work every day to do the best job that they can for the people of Hamilton. We have great faith in the work that they do, and they do very, very difficult work. But I understand the system issues. It's about enforcement. It's about charges. It's about the court system. It's about the uh, uh, representation of uh, complainants and victims in court. Uh, We understand all of that. But the question is, how are you going to institute change and make it better? You have to be at the table. Well, this quote-unquote system that this individual is referring to, as you mentioned, uh, those are the people that make the laws, those are the people that complain that the laws aren't being uh, enforced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're all part of that quote-unquote system, aren't we? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's not perfect, but the way to make it better is to make sure that the voices are heard and, uh, and, and the service has been open. Uh, you know, they, the officers, uh, many years ago in traveling uh, around the city, uh, we encouraged officers uh, on their lunch, uh, rather than drive all the way back to the station to have lunch, and you lose a half an hour of patrol time, you lose the lunch time, and you lose the, uh, the drive back to the beat area, go into a local restaurant, sit down, uh, talk to people, be that public face. They're just regular people, and you should get to know them and discuss the issues with them. 
Glenn, what's this do to, to frontline officers? I mean, and you've talked about uh, the project concern. You've talked about some of the volunteering that officers do, and, those, and that's stuff that doesn't get talked about enough. But, I mean, we see this happen time and time again. So there's an attempt and, and, and a sincere attempt by officers to, to be part of the community and to, and to try to impart the idea that, look, we're not just a, a nameless, faceless uh, you know, police officer. We are people just like you. But then they get a reaction like this. It, it, it's got to be awfully frustrating, I would think. Well, I think people get frustrated by it, uh, but in, in fairness, uh, you know, I, I did that work for 36 years, and I, I have to tell you, Bill, uh, you can read the article, uh, you can be uh, disappointed with what is written, but really what is going to happen when the next call comes in, they are going to respond. They're not going to change their, uh, they're not going to change the way that they respond. They're not going to change their professionalism. They're going to rise above as they always do, and they're going to provide the most excellent service that citizens of Hamilton expect and they deserve. And I have great confidence that all the members will continue to do that. Well, there's uh, there's one post here that I thought kind of summed up, the well, certainly the way I feel, but uh, I'm sure a lot of other people too, uh, that said, uh, thank you for creating an even bigger wall between the police and the community, said one of these posts. This is sad. You just missed a great opportunity. And that, that really, I think, captures what I think this whole program was all about, this coffee with a cop. It's an opportunity to, to have that back and forth and that dialogue. Yeah, and we can't miss those opportunities. Uh, so there's, an, you know, for the individual making that comment, there's uh, perhaps something that was an unintended con- uh, consequence uh, to build that wall. Or maybe it's intentional, Bill. Maybe people just need to have uh, something to have as a, a position of conflict. But really, uh, I think the, the biggest issue is get to the table, have your say, know the officers. Uh, it's the only way to build the uh, relationship and to trust each other. And then when uh, difficult things happen, we'll be at least able to sit at the same table and continue to have uh, that conversation as well. Well, because there has been a, a turnaround. I mean, I understand that there was a time, probably a few generations ago now, where officers were these nameless, faceless people in the uniforms, and they, and I guess a lot of people were intimidated. But you've talked about the you know the the extra officers you put downtown. We've talked about the community policing. Uh, Hamilton was one of the first, if not the first, uh, police service that started in- instituting uh, you know officers in school areas too. You know to to be visiting school liaison officers and that sort of thing. And that's something that's been adopted right across the province now. So there's been an effort there. To, to try to reach out to the community, but it's only going to happen, and it's going to be successful if the community accepts that. And it has to be intentional, uh, and, and the community needs to be sitting at the table with the service, and I know that the chief still continues to meet with the community members and have the discussions. Uh, what programs will work? What programs do we have challenges with? You know, you mentioned the school officers. Uh, I remember when that started uh, in Toronto after... Uh, after a, a young student was shot and killed in a in a school, and it was a it was an outstanding success. And now, of course, that's run its course as well to the position where there there's people that are wanting to take all of the officers out of the schools. So where there's need for change, there's always an opportunity to look at the programs and then redesign, remodel, retool uh, some aspects of it. And in some cases, the programs are are uh, are halted. But again, all of that is done by listening to the community, by getting a sense of where the community wants to go and how we want to how we want to work together. Well, it, it's uh, as the blog post said, it's an opportunity lost. And and the good news, I guess, Glenn, out of all this is the the program's going to continue. This coffee with a cop, obviously, it won't be at this particular coffee shop, but but at others. And I hope that uh, they embrace that and seize it. Um, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Been a long time. I appreciate you joining us today. 
Take care of yourself, Bill. You too. Glad to care, of course, former chief of police here for the uh, Hamilton Police Services. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, interesting study uh, that we're going to talk about over the next couple of minutes here. Uh, Canadians are apparently feeling much better about the institutions uh, in this country than they did a few years ago, according to a new report, uh, putting into question whether the vote driven down with the elite-style populism would be a factor in uh, this year's federal election, which, of course, is coming up in October. Uh, and according to this report, uh, the appetite for populism among Canadians seems to be on the decline, except among some politicians. <laughs> Who would have thought that, right? Joining us to talk about the report is uh, Dr. Michael Morden, uh, Research Director for Samaritan Canada, who uh, instituted the uh, the report and issued it as well. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Are you surprised by the results here? Because uh, all, all we seem to hear about is is this uh, elitism and, you know, I'm not one of you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, it, it's, it's, we're inundated with this stuff right now, but apparently Canadians aren't buying it as much as they used to. Yeah, we are a little surprised, uh, frankly. Uh, you know, we, this narrative is so deeply entrenched now uh, that it's hard to escape. But, you know, for, as a result, we sort of thought it was a good time to look for some empirical basis. And and, and I, I should say that Canadians aren't very happy about our politics, and they do feel disconnected from politicians. And, you know, that part isn't uh, surprising. It's sort of what you'd anticipate. Um, but when you put our findings in their historical context, uh, what you find is that uh, we're not moving in a more populist direction, and actually the reverse is happening. So, for example, 60% of Canadians think that the government doesn't care what people like them think, which, on its face, I mean, that's a really high number. I, you know, that's a, that's a big problem. Uh, but it was 85% in the mid-'90s, and we found some other indicators, too, that it sort of peaked in the 90s and, and have started to come down a little bit. So, uh, so funnily enough, uh, we're becoming more positive towards politics than we've been in the not-too-distant past. You know, I was trying to go back in my mind as I was reading the report today, and I thought, why were we so upset back in the 1990s? <laughs> Boy, we were pretty ticked off. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny thing. We didn't have the same language then, but I think you could regard that time as as a big populist moment. I mean, debt was public debt was very high. Uh, there was all kinds, kinds of constitutional uh, game playing that didn't go anywhere, made people very angry, and you saw the you know, the Mulroney-Campbell uh, conservatives were reduced to two seats from a majority government. You had the Reform Party suddenly on the scene, the Bloc Québécois. So there's actually a lot there. And when you sort of look back on it and sort of think, yeah, yeah, it's it's not that Canada is immune to populism, but maybe we kind of already had a bit of a populist moment, even if we didn't think of it in those terms. Yeah, there was some unrest, obviously. There were Quebec referendums. Uh, there was uh, the, obviously the energy plan in Alberta, and there's speculation about whether they wanted to stay or in confederation yeah. or not. It was a rather tumultuous time. So is, is that when we just kind of throw our hands up and say, these guys just don't listen to us? Yeah, it seems uh, that seemed to be uh, the dynamic. And I don't think there's been anything that has really dramatically won back the approval of Canadians. But over time, we've just sort of um, some of those feelings have just sort of settled a little bit and, and returned to uh, to more to more banal levels. Again, I, we still think it's a it's a big problem if, if for example, sixty five percent of Canadians think that uh, parliamentarians lose touch with the people. Um, it's just that we can't say that that's a larger number than it's been, or it's getting bigger. And it, we ask a series of questions on an ongoing basis. Stuff like if Canadians are satisfied with how their democracy works, if they trust MPs, if they trust parties. And and across the board in the last five years, on, on our indicators of political discontent, we've seen modest improvement. 
how did we get to this point where, and I'm not going to suggest that we're all gullible, but I mean, we seem to buy into this thing that, that you know, the, the other guys, the bad guys, and it depends on who's talking to us, because and, and, this doesn't, any nobody, political party here, nobody has a, 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 the, the corner on this. I mean, they all seem That's to right. do it. They all seem to say, look at, you know, I'm one of you. These guys here, they're out of touch. They have no idea what you're doing. And, and, right. and we buy this, and, and, you know, that I'm just an ordinary guy. And, and the guy in the White House got elected saying that sort of stuff, and he's, he's not an ordinary guy by any stretch of the imagination, but a whole lot of people bought into it. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I know every politician just rolled out of a plaid shirt. And uh, so, you know, are Canadians buying it, or do they just have no real choice since, like you said, that, that language, that discourse is kind of spread across the political spectrum? Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the funny thing is this disconnect that we observe between politicians and, and ordinary Canadians in that we were able to quantify the fact that politicians are compl- using that language, complaining about elites, for example, much, much more commonly than they were in the recent past, uh, which has caused us to, to wonder if populism in Canada is more of a, a top-down than a bottom-up phenomenon. Uh, and I think when politicians make recourse to that language, they often justify it by saying that they're listening to the people and trying to reflect what the people are saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's the case. It seems more to be the case that politicians up here are watching these strong populist appeals uh, in, in other places, stateside, in the UK and Europe, and, and seeing politicians having some success with them, and then are sort of importing that language and, and trying to apply it here rather than actually listening to Canadians. Well, we saw that with the provincial election here in Ontario just a few months ago too. That that same sort of attitude about uh, you know I'm I'm one of you guys and uh, and again a guy who's you know uh, well he's an elitist I mean, he he is but I mean he, that's not how he he characterizes himself and people just say I don't care what what the reality is that's what he's saying and that's what I want to buy into isn't this the old idea though Michael of people telling us what we want to hear not what we need to hear. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And and so with an election coming up, we wanted to put this out to kind of push back on the narrative a little bit and also issue a challenge in the first place to politicians who, you know, see this kind of appeal as as effective, uh, whether or not it is. And, And, I mean, we've observed for years that politicians feel the need to kind of denigrate the whole undertaking of politics and always present themselves as somehow, you know, apart from it or removed from it. Uh, when the reality is, and as radical as this sounds, I really do think that most people go into politics because they think they can do some some good and they can render a public service. Uh, we need to hear more of that at the same time that politicians should be talking about what they're going to do to make politics uh, more amenable. Uh, and at the same time, I think Canadians just need to be a little bit uh, critical in how we consume uh, in politics uh, as the election cycle starts to get underway. And and we should be looking for real, serious, concrete, substantive commitments from politicians about how to make uh, democracy work better and how to make sure that the will of the people is reflected in their government. Uh, we need, you know, we we need some thoughtfulness there. And we need that rather than more of the same of this fairly empty artificial rhetoric. But aren't politicians that do that sort of thing playing with fire? I mean, to, you know, if you say, look at those guys are all crooks. Uh, those guys up in Ottawa, those guys at Queens Park or wherever, you know, the, the seat of government happens to be. But I'm not one of them. I'm I'm different. I'm 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 the, I'm the good guy. I'm the clean guy. But. <laughs> But, I mean, if yeah. you're a politician, then you're going to get looped into that, aren't you? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. the politicians are probably the, the worst ones for denigrating their own profession. That's right. I, I absolutely agree. And you get locked into this kind of cycle, right? And, and the problem is, 
Uh, yeah, if, if we continue to hear from our politicians that our politics uh, is crooked or rigged and that other politicians can't be trusted and that our institutions can't be trusted, at some point we might actually start believing them. Uh, so, you know, that kind of discourse, I think it just feeds into, it, it actually creates political discontent where it, it doesn't necessarily exist. Um, and and uh, we've seen this internationally where you have populist politicians trying to drum up anger uh, and then, and then that anger sort of produces more populism, uh, and and populist governments have, on balance, tended to be bad for democracy. So that further fuels discontent, and you get into locked into these cycles of profound cynicism and alienation, which make healthy democratic politics really hard, if not impossible. If if it's on the decline here, as your numbers indicate. Uh, is, is it because we've watched uh, th- these populists in the past? Uh, some of them maybe initially succeed, but in the long term, uh, we seem to be worse off with them. And I think Brexit's a probably a classic example of that, uh, with the, the number of people that were pushing for Brexit and find you know everything's going to be fine. Vote you know let's leave the EU. Everything's and and it, this has been their worst nightmare ever since then. Uh, we've seen the similar thing happening in the United States. And I know they're a year away from their election, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, the reality here is that uh, even though the numbers say that the economy in the United States is doing quite well, uh, and the average individual that we talk to or that we see on some of the news shows say, hey, it's not happening to me. So mm-hmm. there's a, I think that's one of the parts of the cynicism that, hey, maybe maybe we got sucked into this and maybe we're not going that way again. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I hope that's true. I hope Canadians are, are carefully watching what's happening in other places because the international record is pretty clear. Even if you, just get, a, if you get away from just Brexit and Trump and look at uh, what might be characterized as populist governments and administrations over the last, say, 50 years, they have not been, on balance, good for democracy. They've been more likely than non-populist governments to, to harm democratic institutions because uh, they're offering a very simple solution, which is basically trust me, right? Don't, you know, don't trust institutions, trust me. Only I alone can fix it. Uh, when what we need are fairly complex and nuanced ones, which is to actually get into the institutions and into the systems and, and figure out what isn't working for ordinary Canadians, uh, ordinary people uh, everywhere. So uh, I'd like to think Canadians are, are, are critically consuming international news, and, and that's reflecting uh, reflecting back on their, you know, on what they want from for our country. Well, it's, it's it's hard to to not do that. I mean, we're inundated with it from all just about all sides, aren't we? Oh, no, that's true. Yeah. From media, <laughs> social media, all over the place. I mean, it's there, and opinions are coming at us left, right, and center at the same time. Yeah, that's true. And and, and I mean, there's a negative side to that too, which is I think you know part of the reason where we the chattering classes are ready to accept this this populism narrative is just because we we see it elsewhere and and are are, are maybe too quick to just import that narrative and apply it here. One of the concerns, though, and I'm glad you talked about this, is is those institutions themselves, because it seems as if those that, that rise on this this wave of populism, or did rise on that wave of populism, uh, don't just denigrate other politicians, they also denigrate those institutions. And, and we see that, obviously, in the states these days. You know, yeah. You've got a guy in the White House that's saying, don't trust the FBI, don't trust this, don't trust that, don't trust the, uh, the House of Representatives. In, in other words, anybody who opposes him or has a contrary point of view is apparently a, an enemy of the state. And, and uh, sadly, there's some people that seem to buy into that. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty dangerous road they're going down. It's a da- I mean, that is exactly the danger in populism. And you, can, you, you can keep redefining who the elites are in order to delegitimize who, whomever is going to stand in your way. So elites 
are economic elites when that's useful, or elites can mean journalists, right? When journalists are asking tough questions, they become the enemy of the people. Uh, the whole point of undermining trust in institutions is really to sweep away checks and balances on power and, and to consolidate power. Uh, that's why, you know, that's why populists discourage citizens from looking to those institutions because mm-hmm. those institutions are in effect in their way. Uh, and that's the, yeah, so I think you've, you've pinpointed the danger exactly. Well, and that's where the, the, the whole idiotic phrase of fake news was born from. Fake news is by definition news that contradicts the statements and the, and the beliefs that, that he's trying to purport right now. So all of a sudden you have to brand it as fake, as something that's not real. And, uh, and, and that, I guess, legitimizes your point of view and, and, and your stand on issues. That's right, yeah. That's all, I think it's all of a piece. So, so where do we go from here? I mean, we're going to have an election in just a few months in this country right now. Uh, we seem to be a little more trustful of politicians, not so sure that they, they've earned it as much as maybe we're giving, no. but in situations like this. But what are we looking for now? Uh, and I don't mean from political party, but what kind of an attitude, what kind of a presentation are we looking from our elected officials these days? We seem to be much more discerning than we were in the past. Yeah, and I think, I would, I would, I think you're absolutely right, and I think politicians should recognize that. Canadians are up for a substantive conversation. Uh, if you look at you know what media Canadians are consuming, for example, I just you know just learned yesterday that there's a tremendous appetite for uh, newspaper websites are finding a tremendous appetite appetite for actually you know fairly sophisticated sort of policy based discussions and and uh, explainers and that kind of thing. So there's actually an unrequited appetite for a more serious sober, substantive kind of politics. And I'm afraid that's not what we're going to get from any party uh, in this upcoming election. So, you know, I hope hope politicians are able to kind of keep some emotion in check and recognize that Canadians are looking for something a little bit more concrete than that, and we could actually have a sophisticated conversation. Is that going to (laughs) happen? You know, time will tell. And we've already seen that even though... Structurally and fundamentally, Canadians are reasonably satisfied. Satisfaction has already dropped this year as a consequence of the SNC-Lavalin story. And so uh, it should be noted that this stuff is fragile and there's no guarantee that we won't uh, screw it up. Well, that would be great to see uh, because, uh, and again, to go back to the, the rise of those who, who try to use populism as, as their tool, as their vehicle, uh, they're usually short on details. There's very little discussion, very little debate about, as you say, about policies. It's more bombast than anything else. Yeah, it's easier to uh, make recourse to that that very simple zero sum um, kind of well you know well worn shop worn language than it is to really offer solutions for ordinary people and, and fundamentally that's the problem. Well, and and that's why you all of a sudden they revert to slogans. You know, let's yes. two or three slogans. Repeat the slogan. Repeat the slogan. Well, how are you going to do that? No, it doesn't matter. You know, lower taxes, whatever it is. I mean, uh, make America great again. Uh, any a number of things. I mean, these these are the ones that seem to resonate with people. Uh, are we less, uh, or maybe even more immune to it up in this in part of the country than, than maybe our, our southern neighbors? I don't want to be unfair to our southern neighbors. Um, I think. Yeah, I'm kind of inclined to believe maybe maybe that we are, and that that's been reflected. I mean, there's no question that the character of our politics is different here, and there's some some deep historical antecedents causes for that. Uh, so let's let's not squander the fact that you know we have a, a public that's I think uh, relatively mature in a lot of ways and doesn't always get treated that way. 
Yeah, and and the, the biggest problem we can have here is if we just look at down down our noses and say, hey, we're better than them, uh, because we're, yep, we're obviously sure. some of the stuff that we've seen here in the last couple of years proves that yeah, we can be uh, obviously victimized by this whole same wave that we've seen in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's that's a really important point, and 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 we've got lots of our own problems too. And you know, nothing in our research is ever to suggest that 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 isn't the case. In fact, I, I mean, I really truly believe that there's lots about our politics to be discontented about. Uh, and, you know, it's simply a caution not to readily and uncritically assume that uh, whatever's happening down there is also happening up here. We're telling our own story, you know, for better and worse. Is that part of the Canadian psyche? I mean, we get ticked off at politicians. You know, they promise this, they don't do this, and we get angry for about a day, <laughs> a week, yeah. and then we seem to move on. Yeah, there's something to that. I mean, we do like, you know, it also seems like it's a bit of a dynamic value and that sometimes governments sort of reach their expiration date and, and suddenly all it all starts to stick. But there does seem to be a funny, almost kind of, kind of cyclical quality to that. Interesting study. Fabulous and, and, and very insightful, too. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for the time. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Oh, it's always great. Thanks so much for the chat, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Michael Morton, Research Director for Science Canada. Uh, you can go to their webpage if you want to get a copy of the report, by the way, and uh, get an idea as to just what we're thinking. And, and pretty important stuff, obviously. Like I say, with an election coming up in October, uh, what are we going to be looking for from our politicians, and, and, and how are they going to come after us uh, looking for our support in situations like this? Uh, do you fall for slogans, or do you want some more substance? Uh, that's going to be, I think, a key part of what's going to happen, and maybe even a key part in determining who's going to win this thing in October. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, we're going to talk about something <laughs> just as controversial, uh, how much we pay for auto insurance uh, here in uh, Ontario, and specifically here in Hamilton. Apparently, we have the ninth largest uh, community in Ontario when it comes to uh, insurance rates. Uh, they go up, they go up, they go up. Uh, according to... Uh, Canix.ca. Uh, uh, right now, the average, the most uh, for right now, is about sixteen hundred bucks. Now that varies, obviously, depending on what you're driving, where you're driving, and things of this nature. But that's about almost two hundred bucks more than uh, the provincial average. So what's going on here? Joining us to talk about this is Justin Thuan, the CEO for LowestRates.ca, who we uh, hope can shed some light on this. Hi, Justin. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a this is something that I think ranks just rankles just about everybody. Every, you know, you get your renewal and you figure, hey, I've been a good driver. I got no tickets. I'm not. I'm you know. I'm, I'm staying on the right side of the law. I, I don't text when I'm driving. I'm not doing anything else. And the rates just keep going up. What's going on? I can understand why this is frustrating for people because the rates do continue to go up. If you look versus last year, car insurance rates in Ontario have gone up close to ten percent, and the reason is because claims are going up. Insurance companies are having to pay more out in claims than they have before. And so to remain profitable, they have to increase their premiums. And why are costs going up for the insurance companies? Because cars, the main reason is because cars are getting more expensive to fix. There's more technology, all of the things that we like about new cars, they break more often because there's more computers, they cost more to fix. And then there's other elements like insurance fraud. That's a big problem in Ontario. And things like the winter weather, people not using winter tires, more frequent accidents. So it really just comes down to profitability for the insurance companies, them needing to make money and having to increase the prices. Well, your point's well taken. I mean, basically, when we're driving, we're driving a, a computer, really, aren't you? You really are. I mean, it's amazing the innovation that's occurred in automobiles over the past 20 years. And all of us have benefited 
But with that, there come some uh, some downfalls, including, you know, it's more expensive to fix and it breaks more often. You know, I remember my first vehicle, you know, a Toyota Corolla with no with no electric uh, air conditioning or no electric windows, they would never break. And now, you know, more recent cars with lots of computerized things inevitably break more often. Yeah, and and we feel all of a sudden as if my goodness, you know, well, what are we going to do without this? I haven't got my air; it's not working properly. I mean, we 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 get used to the creature comforts, don't we? Absolutely, exactly. What but, everybody wants. But why why the higher rates in different parts? And I, we had a discussion about this a couple of months ago, uh, and I think one of the politicians at Queens Park referred to this as postal code insurance rates. Uh, depending on where you live, you might actually pay more than than somebody else uh, in a different part of town. Yeah, it's very true. And it's difficult to accept if you're an individual who has a clean driving record, you know, has stayed on the right side of the law, you know, you would expect to be treated favorably because of that. And you are treated favorably to an extent, but an overriding factor in how much these insurance companies charge is based on the area where you live, what their actuaries project they're going to have to pay out in claims. So they go back and they look at the history of how much they've collected in premiums from people in an area versus how much they paid out in claims. And then their actuaries assign a risk profile to a particular postal code, and they use that as a very large determining factor in how much your insurance is going to be. So if you're a perfect driver, but you live in an area where there were a ton of claims in the last few years, then you're going to get penalized as a result. Well, I've told the story before, but I'll mention it to you. We we moved about year and a half or so ago, I guess, uh, to the same neighborhood. I mean, we're maybe maybe a mile away, maybe not even quite a mile away from from our previous house. Uh, so it's basically the same. I thought, okay, everything's going to be fine. It's almost the same postal code, as a matter of fact. There's only one digit difference. My the car insurance rates went up, and I said, "What's going on here?" They said, "Well, as you just explained." I said, "How can that possibly have any impact on me?" You know, I'm, I'm a good driver. I used to say, you do everything. It's the same neighborhood, but all of a sudden, because I'm about six blocks away from where I used to be, my rates go up. I mean, that's, that's ludicrous, really. It's difficult to accept for consumers, absolutely. But the difficult part of it for insurance companies is they need to figure out a way to predict how much to charge people so that they can still make money. And what's actually happening, not just Ontario, in Ontario, but across Canada, is insurance companies aren't making close to as much money in car insurance as they want to be. In fact, in some provinces, they're losing money entirely. And in many provinces, they don't even want new customers. So in many cases, some insurance companies may raise prices, and the consumer may come back and say, hey, this isn't fair. And they'll be happy about that, because they would rather not have that consumer. Because the cost in claims is exceeding the amount that they're taking in. It's a big problem right now in Canada with car insurance because consumers aren't happy because rates are going up and insurance companies aren't happy because in many cases they're actually losing money. So some things need to change. You know, either claims need to go down in terms of, you know, fraud goes down, distracted driving goes down, the amount that insurance companies need to pay out in claims goes down or prices need to go up or this is going to continue to be a very contentious issue. But but the reality here is that even though claim or you know as you say claims are going up premiums are certainly increasing as well but we're getting less for it we're getting less coverage for it i mean it, for, god forbid you should get in a, in a in a collision and uh, you need some sort of medical attention or ongoing therapy or something like this they they don't cover half of what they used to cover even 5 or 6 years ago now well the problem is that there's there's a lot of fraud in ontario and there are certain individuals and groups that 
know all of the loopholes in the system and are taking full advantage of them. And those claims and those costs are driving up the insurance company costs at the expense of honest, hardworking Ontarians. So why then do we get into a situation where if there's a fraudster that everybody has to suffer and everybody has to pay, why can't they just root out the fraudsters? I mean, don't they have people that investigate this sort of stuff? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. So we, we have millions of people that come to our website to compare car insurance rates yeah. every year. And so we have an opportunity to speak with um, influencers like the government, the Ontario government, that makes these decisions. And that's one of the things that we stress to them. Instead of trying to control how much car insurance companies charge for insurance, what you should be doing is putting exceptionally harsh penalties upon those areas that cause this these runaway costs, it's, and fraud is one of them. So I think what the Ontario government can do if they really want to help control car insurance costs is do a massive investigation into these fraudsters and put massively harsh penalties, not just on the fraudsters, but on distracted driving. How about if you get caught with your cell phone, you can't drive for a year or two? You know, that would stop a lot of distracted driving and accidents. You know, how about if, you caught, if you're caught perpetrating fraud, you can't drive for 10 years? Yeah, I just think harsher penalties and more focus in this area would make a huge difference. I don't disagree. I think that makes all kinds of sense. And that way there'd be at least a little more sense of fairness to this whole situation. Uh, because, you know, we keep hearing from the insurance companies about fraudsters. And uh, and, and if there's, you know, if if the penalties are so weak right now that they say, oh, what's the big deal if I get caught? Uh, they're going to keep doing it. And this, your, the point about distractor driving is just bang on. I mean, I, I, I think 60% of the people I pass on the road every day are, are doing something. Uh, at high speeds a lot of the time, too, and that's kind of frightening. I mean, they're an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. The penalties need to be harsher because if distracted driving didn't happen, if fraud didn't happen, if everybody in the winter used winter tires, the number of claims would go down, insurance companies would be happier, they would start competing for Ontarians' business, they would lower their prices, and they'd also make insurance better. You know, we talked about innovation in vehicles in terms of vehicles being so much more convenient and better than 20 years ago. You know, insurance companies would make insurance a lot better if they had an incentive to, if they wanted new business. They'd make it more convenient. They'd make it online. They could make it more personalized. But the problem is right now, a lot of the companies don't even want Ontarians' insurance business because they're not making money. So it's a very, very large problem right now. But this is the path of least resistance, though, isn't it, Justin? I mean, it's easier for just to raise rates for everybody than to actually get and, and crack down on the people that are abusing the system. Well, absolutely. It's a faster solution, but it's a necessary solution for the insurance companies. And I can tell you that there are many insurance companies that are simply just they're, they're leaving the market. You know, companies like eSurance have left the Canadian insurance market just because they can't make any money. You know, in our business, we compare rates from we try to, all of the major insurance companies in Canada, and we have a problem right now where we can't even place certain consumers with insurance companies in Ontario because the insurance companies don't want certain new business because they're predicting that they're going to lose money on it. So there really has to be a change. Either you know the costs of claims need to go down or prices are going to continue to go up. So is there a better system? I mean, you know, because different provinces have different methodologies in how they do this. I mean, there's no-fault insurance, et cetera. Is, a, is, is that a cleaner system? I, I think that the Ontario government is moving in the right direction. You know, from our perspective and also speaking with a number of different insurance partners, the, the proposed uh, legislation that the Ontario government has put forward to make insurance more personalized 
is definitely moving in the right direction. But from, from our perspective, you know, the focus really does need to be harsher penalties on those areas that are actually driving up claims. And it's very simple. It's like that. And, and we believe that if that happens, that it's going to be a deterrent, an effective deterrent for, 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 to stop, you know, to stop the fraud and stop the distracted driving. And, and that will be the best way to lower costs for everybody. Where I, I guess what I want to nail down here, and I, this is because we hear this from the insurance industry all the time. We've talked with with the, uh, people from IBC and etc. And when every time, well, we could do that every day, I guess, because there's always somebody complaining about their insurance rates. But they always they always go back to this idea about fraud. And and what I'd like to see is some statistics. About, I mean, it's something they throw out there, and everybody says, "Oh yeah, I guess that's happening." But how rampant is it? I mean, is is it really ruining the industry? And if it was, that everybody would stop it. I mean, they all say that to have with it that we're not going to do this anymore. Well, that's what's happening. I, I, I can tell you in Alberta, uh, it's very, very difficult for a consumer to even get insurance right now unless you're willing to pay for it all up front for a year because insurance companies just don't want uh, consumers. And Ontario is going to go that way. You know, the government has allowed Ontario insurance companies to raise their prices more than Alberta companies, but you, you hit it bang on. If things don't change, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either insurance rates are going to go so high that it's going to be a deterrent for people driving, or if the insurance companies aren't allowed to charge what they want, they're just going to leave the market, and it's going to be hard for some people to even get insurance. So the root cause must be addressed. And in the meantime, all people can do, they've got to go and they've got to compare. They've got to, because they're, the way that one insurance company, or going back to, to, to Hamilton, the way that one insurance company views Hamilton from a risk profile is different from another insurance company. So I urge your listeners, you know, not to stay with the same insurance company every year to compare the market on sites like lowestrates.ca and to try to save as much money as they can while all of this gets figured out. Justin, uh, uh, by the way, they can go to that website and get all sorts of information on that too and uh, and maybe save a few bucks. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Really appreciate it. Take care. Justin Tulin, of course, the CEO of lowestrates.ca. Uh, and listen, I hear, I understand what he's saying, but I get this time and time and time again from insurance companies that there's rampant fraud that's going on. And and again, it's it's like governments that say, you know, we're going to cut back on such and such a program because there's people scamming the system. There's always going to be people who scam the system. But I, I just don't believe that it's as rampant as they want us to have it believed. I mean, because uh, we've seen this happen all too often where people that try to put legitimate claims in are getting turned down by insurance companies. So don't tell me that, you know, they're doing their due diligence on this. I, I want you to read an email. Rebecca Wisons, of course, is a personal injury lawyer. Uh, she says, here we go again. Blame accident victims at the cause, as the cause, rather, for rising insurance rates. Insurance companies spend obscene amounts of money hiring helpful doctors and therapists to give them a foundation for denying their own clients' treatment plans submitted by their own clients' doctors and therapists. In the vast majority of cases, a person's own insurance company will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to try to prove their own client should not be entitled to hundreds of dollars of treatment. Let's not forget that OHIP picks up the tab for all the doctor and specialist appointments, so the insurance industry gets a huge break there as well. And that's the reality. And that's what we always say. It's one thing to say, well, the rates are that high, but don't worry. If you ever have a problem, you get in an accident, or if you're injured, uh, the insurance company is going to look after you. You're in for a big shock if that should happen. God forbid you should get into a situation like that where there's a personal injury involved. Because some of the biggest fights that I've heard from people in that industry are, are, are with your own insurance company, the ones that you think are on your side. So be wary. 
that it can happen that way. And the insurance companies have got just like everybody else. Uh, they've they've got this this mindset and this line, and you know, we buy it. And the problem is, we're into a situation in this province and just about every other province, of course, where it's the law that we have to buy that product, being in car insurance. And the government themselves, who in, who institute this policy and to say we all have to have insurance to drive, do a poor job of policing that industry. And we're the ones that end up paying for it. That's the reality. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.